Welcome to the Friendly Maples Lounge, the podcast all about board games, new and old, weird and fun, and our thoughts and feelings on their playability. I'm your host, Jen Flores. And I'm your host, Chris Ingold. And today we are doing our last episode of the year. So this will be our last episode of technically season one of the Friendly Maples Lounge. And I don't believe we're already at the end of the year and have released so many episodes. When, when was episode one? I'm pretty sure it was March. That sounds about right. It Actually, no, it would have been actually earlier because remember we were, we were recording at BunnyCon and we'd already released a few episodes at BunnyCon. I know we started planning the podcast around about now, last year. We might have actually been doing a whole year, Chris. Watch out for the first birthday episode at some point in the new year, uh, once we've worked out when that is, because memories are a bit adult, it's December and everything, <laughs> and we've, all, we've all got Christmas brains. Uh, but we'll work out for that at that point. But no, that's, it's just, this year has disappeared. I know. I think from this time last year to now, like my life has changed significantly. Like it's just, it's nuts to think since we did the first episode, how much has changed? Actually, in both of our personal lives as well, like a huge amount's changed for both of us, hasn't it? It's, it's changed and then it's changed again. And then after that, it's changed again and then mm. it's changed again. Uh, I think it's been one of those years. I, I think it has <laughs> been for a lot of people because so many things have been, I think, kind of catching up. It's almost like the world stopped for a couple of years during the pandemic and somehow all the change mm-hmm. that didn't happen during the pandemic has sort of accelerated to try and get back to where it was. And that's sometimes fun. And sometimes it's less fun uh, because you're sort of like running around yeah. trying to cope with what life throws at you and it, it throws you a good ball and then it throws you a duff ball. And you're like thinking, well, you could have spread them out a little bit more. But I think the one Absolutely. thing that has been <laughs> fabulous this year has been board games. Despite some of the shipping challenges yes. that still exist, uh, we have had a great year in board games, which is great because that means we get to have a happy podcast because our podcast is about board games. And look, this time we are doing a bit of a special episode where Chris and I are going to go through our top 10 new games of this year. Uh, we actually just discovered having a bit of a chat. We actually approached it a little bit differently. So I thought we were doing the top 10 games we discovered this year. And Chris thought that we were doing, we doing the top 10 games that were released this year. <laughs> so I've, uh, I've, I've done the top 10 games that were released this year, but there's pretty big overlap with the top 10 games I've discovered this year yeah. as well. So I think there would be, uh, I think, probably a couple of honourable mentions that would have slipped in uh, for older games that I, I played this year and decided, ooh, I like that. Because uh, there have been a couple of those, and, and, and there should be in any year that, you, that you, you're playing. But there's been a lot of great new games this year as well. The one thing that we did note in that is that uh, doing any top 10 for the year, and this is where I think Jen's approach might actually have been a little bit fairer, is that there are some poor games that are 2023 games that are not going to hit the lists. I can think of one in particular, and it could be great, might not be great. It might, might be really average, but I know where it is. It's sat neath the works warehouse and it ain't going to leave with the works warehouse until past Christmas, I don't think. So it's a 2023 Yay! game, but I won't play it. And likewise, uh, um, you know, there's the games that maybe have only just landed or the game that is on the shelf, but you haven't been able to play it yet. So, um, so I know one game that I think is a uh, top 10 candidate for a lot of people from 2023 is Sky Team. Sky Team's in my cupboard. I've mm-hmm. not played it yet. 
I've not played it in any way. You have to like sit down and actually play the game to be able to appreciate if it's any good. And I've not had that opportunity. I may well have that opportunity over the next few days. But for now, when we're recording this podcast, Sky Team, unfortunately, is an, uh, is a, I'm sorry, I'm sure it should be in there. It probably will make it in there <laughs> from everything I've heard about it. But it's not in my list because I haven't played it yet. Do you know, I actually remember at the start of the year as well, probably our very first episode, I was talking about how I've got the huge everything box of Everdell and I my goal was to play Everdell with all the expansions this year haven't done it <laughs> absolutely <laughs> have not done it haven't had time haven't had table space just you know I think the goals we start the year with the things we grab sometimes we get so excited about a game and we're just like oh my god I definitely want to play that but I'm just going to go do this thing first <laughs> and yeah, sometimes it just slips away. Jen, now hold on, roll back a bit. I believe you are the only person that I know with table space to actually play Everdell with all the expansions. <laughs> Have you actually tried it and realised that even your table can't fit it? No. <laughs> I haven't even gotten the whole thing out of the box at the same time, other than for when Rod was putting all the stickers on the meeples. We actually, look, to be fair, we did have some friends coming over a couple of weeks ago where our aim was we were going to play Everdell with all of the expansions. And this was right after MeepleCon. And I was so tired and Rod was super tired and we'd borrowed Apiary from Francois so that we could have a go at playing Apiary. And Rod was like, oh, why don't we play Apiary first and then we can play Everdell? And by the time we got done playing Apiary, I was like, guys, I'm exhausted. Like learning new games for me can be quite exhausting, especially when I'm already tired because we've just finished running a three-day convention. Yeah, nah. But I know it does fit on my table. I know it does because even with the expansions and stuff that we had before, it fits sideways on my table. So the fact that the new expansions go up and down, I mean, it's 1.2 by 2.4 metres. It's huge. So I'm sure we have room for it. We we just need to actually get around to playing it. I, I had a, a weird kind of visual pop in my head earlier when we were discussing table size thinking many of us struggle with the amount of space that, that games take out. Jen's lucky that she's got an absolutely enormous table. But one of the things I remember from the, the olden days, and I don't know how much this is a thing these days, um, but my dad was really obsessed with like model railways. And, and he had a small one sort of set up. But there are other people obsessed with model railways who had these great big massive tables with beautiful kind of forests and woodland and model houses and everything set up. And this little like trains that they then switch on and they whiz around the tracks and go around in circles but the beauty of the thing was actually this big model of this landscape and actually i could imagine everdell being the game rather than like you know you've got all the train games you'd think they would be the obvious candidates but actually everdell would be the perfect game to have integrated into a massive like model diorama you take take one of those like model railway tables actually put a little like meeple carrying train on it to carry your meeples around from like worker placement spot to worker placement spot and just build the whole thing that's this so big cute. diorama and have like kind of a, and then you could all sit in different places and what would be really cool is because it's quite hard to lean over a big table is actually then you could add more expansions to Everdell because you just say I want to put my worker over there and you just stick them in the train press a button and you send them off to the station see if you can get like a little lever to take them out and put them on the spot that would be cool now I don't know why that popped into my head 
What's actually really funny is when I was little, my grandpa and I built an N-gauge model railway set and that's how I got into building landscapes and things and why I'm so good at building, you know, like all that, um, oh, my God, what's it called, Blood Bowl um, Warhammer. I used to make all the Warhammer landscapes and stuff for my brothers when they were playing. And I used to love painting the models and love making the landscapes, not as big on playing Warhammer, but we had a model railway set that was literally, it was this big U-shape and he built it in the back of his shed. Now his shed was half the size of my house and having been to my house, you know how big that is because it was a big rural property. So our model railway was this big U-shape that was three metres by one and a half metres and then another three metres by one and a half metres and the same size at the back. So it was it literally took up easily four by four metres of floors. No, it would have been more than that. The room that it was in, because we created a little room inside the shed, was almost the same size as my board game room. It was huge. Like this, it was absolutely huge. And because we had the door in the middle, it went all the way around the walls on every single side and we had landscape everywhere and he bought all these little engage models from the UK that were like different train stations from different cities. Like he had a replica of the Harrogate train station in the middle of our little diorama and we had Big Ben and we had the London Bridge. We had all sorts of really amazing things in this landscape. It literally looked like, you know, there was a little city in one spot that had all these little buildings and stuff that are famous from London and then a whole bunch of countryside that was it was like he was building this memory of having lived in England with me when I was little and I loved making it and I'm now going god damn it I wish we still had that because I could turn it into the most epic Everdell or Ticket to Ride ever that would have been so cool Ticket to Ride feels like the obvious candidate for something like that, but it's just not, because if you're being authentic, mm. if you're on Ticket to Ride, you'd like press the thing for your train to start and it would stop because the track's not been built yet. At the end of it, you could basically sit there and go, right, who reaches a destination or who falls over a cliff from an unfinished train track uh, a la sort of Back to the Future 3? <laughs> <laughs> Which is obviously how Ticket to Ride Legacy is going to end. You could have done it, actually, because we had something like 30 almost 40 train stations on this map or on this big diorama. So you probably could. Oh, my goodness. Ah, I'm really bummed now that we sold it. Damn it. <laughs> I guess we, we better plough in. Have you got any honorary mentions? Is there anything that's not hit your top 10 that you feel needs to be pulled out mentioned from the year? Oh, anything that's not hit my top 10 that I want to call out? Not that I can really think of because all the ones that I sort of have called out are new games that I've played this year. Oh, actually, yes. Um, oh, my God, I can't remember what it's called. Is it K- Kitsendo? Kitsendo. Is that the – that's that kind of like Battle Royale card game with the beautiful foxes that was at the Meeple Market as well? Yes. Yeah, I think Kitsendo. I think yes. that's how it's pronounced. Yeah. Kitsendo. 
Yeah, absolutely, because it's so pretty. <laughs> it's the artwork in it is beautiful and it it almost made my top 10, but yeah, I I left it out only because I had to narrow it down to 10, but definitely I would say honorable mention, beautiful game, beautifully packaged, um really interesting mechanics like mechanics I haven't really come across before so yes honorable mention Kitsuendo how about you um there's a couple of games which have arrived or are about to arrive this year which could be great uh, but I don't know as I said so one of those is the fox experiment which is the new game from Elizabeth Hargraves. And I forget Mm. the name of the other designer at the moment. Apologies to to him. Uh, But that is based on some old fox breeding experiment from the 1950s and is basically a cross between a sort of a sort of strategy game, not really a worker placement game, a sort of an engine building game and a roll and write. It's not really a roll and write, but it also is a roll and write because you're writing on the cards and you're rolling great big handfuls of dice. The only reason I've not played that yet is because it is pretty obvious that that's a game that is going to be better at higher player counts. So I expect I'll have it in the bag on Boxing Day, Jen, uh, when, uh, when we nice. to play games on Boxing Day, but it hasn't been played yet. Another game that's really interesting, which is the one that I'm waiting to see when it'll ship for Metherworks, is called Mythwind. And Mythwind is definitely intriguing. It will either be a complete damp squib or it'll be something very special <laughs> because it's a game that doesn't end. It's a cooperative game like Animal Crossing or so on. Uh, You can apparently just set it up, have another go, where you build up your town, you build up all your things, you're building up all of these different uh, things within your community, you've got all these different roles, and then you get to a point where you've made some progress and you put it away again. And you take it out again and carry on, and you put it away again. It's a game with no win condition, no end, apparently. I think they must run out of content at some point. Flexible, you just grow and you get various different things that make you happy. Now, that is interesting. Send out a board game where there is no end to it and no winning, and you just play and then put it away and then you get it out again and play some more and put it away. I'm intrigued by that because I'm intrigued. It's, it's like that. It's a brave thing. How do you make that work? The interesting thing is, if he does make it work, then that is going to be something quite phenomenal because that might then spin off a whole new direction for where board games can go. So that's designed by Brendan McCaskill, who did do the Gloomhaven space game, Stars of Vicarious, which uh, that apparently was a little bit overblown from what I've heard about it, but I've not played it. It was just a bit overcomplicated, so I'm hoping this is more streamlined, but I'm I'm really interested in that one. Uh, And then, as I said, Sky Team's an honorary mention because I haven't got to play it yet. And Hegemony or hegemony, depending on how you say it, um, the big politics game. That didn't make your top 10? No, that's only not made my top 10. So there's a couple of games which were in contention for my top 10 that I've played solo, but I haven't yet had the opportunity to play multiplayer. One of them, bit reveal, has made my top 10 because in playing it solo, A, I really, really enjoyed it that much, and B, I thought I'm going to absolutely adore this multiplayer. I think it's lower on my top 10 than it would have been if I'd have played it multiplayer, but I just don't know yet. Hegemony, I want to reserve judgment because having played it solo, it is quite a massive overhead to do that. I can see the game that's hidden within there, but I can't fully appreciate what it would be like. Whereas I think with the other game that I'm I'm going to add into my top 10, I think I can. Actually, there's one other one that I want to say is an honourable mention that I really enjoy, but wouldn't quite make my top 10. And that's Project L. 
which you taught me at BunnyCon. Definitely, I was like, oh, wow, this is actually kind of cool. Like, it's a really cool game that I love getting out and playing because it's a good warm-up game, but didn't quite make my top ten. See, of course, you discovered Project L this year. Uh, Project L, it was from the year before, I think, or it might Probably. was it even earlier. Uh, but the if Project L had been in contention for my top ten, if it had been a game of 2023, it, it would have been made way up my list. Uh, Project L is wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> so the only, it's, uh, it's absolutely fantastic. That's an evergreen. I'm waiting. In fact, I think another thing that's in shipping at the moment is the latest mini expansion to Project L and finally the big big box or the big half a box because they've got a big box um, deluxe storage solution for Project L. But it's not a big box. It's a big half a box because you reuse your existing lid. Look at that for... Ah. <laughs> so that's interesting. Well, that's cool. Right. Should we go? Do you know one that I mm-hmm. want to actually give one more honourable mention is this year they released a fan art version of some of the cards in Wingspan. And if you haven't seen the fan art cards for Wingspan, find a friend who's got a copy of it. They're absolutely beautiful. We haven't put it in our game because you have to actually go through the game and find those birds and replace the cards because otherwise you've got two copies. But it's a really lovely look. If you're still looking for a Christmas gift for someone who loves Wingspan, try your hardest to find the fan art box because it's really beautiful. And some of the fan art is a little bit cute and kitschy. Like it's it's very obviously kids that have drawn it and they just thought it was really sweet that kids have sent their art in. But most of it is just this absolutely incredibly beautiful fan art. So not really a game but an expansion to a game. Definitely try and Try and find a copy. It's beautiful if you love Wingspan. I've seen just a few pictures of some of the art. And for that reason, uh, um, the reason that it involves resorting through your cards and you've got to decide, well, what are you going to keep in your game? You're going to keep the fan art. And it's like, ooh, I like this piece of fan art, but I prefer this piece of original art. It's, yeah, I, there's no way I know that I'm ever going to do that. Uh, but I would love to have a look at it, Jen, uh, when, when I get the chance, if you've got that, because I saw some of them and I thought, these are really nice. Yeah, they're beautiful. They're really beautiful. All right, let's kick into it. And I reckon you should go first this time because last time we did a, a top five list, I went first. So you get right. to go first this time, Chris. Okay. Dun, dun, dun. So my number 10 of 2023 is a game that's been uh, published by a local Australian publisher. Uh, It has been um, designed, I think, in Japan. And it's a game that encapsulates the true essence of what it is to be a ninja who is trying to go out and do their ninjury things in an environment that is about as stable as a small road built over a number of Mexican sinkholes. (laughs) <laughs> it is uh, it is floating floors, and floating floors is a effectively a dexterity game or pathfinding game where you are trying to navigate your ninja across all these floating floors, which are cards that have been balanced on other cards, which in turn are on top of little wooden shapes. 
and you have to try and balance the weight of your ninja with the weight of the other shapes. But then you'll find that floors will rotate and other players will adjust the different floors and the different paths that are available because everyone's trying to find their own little routes to their own um, different destination. What's so great about floating floors, and I do love my dexterity games, but is that it's that kind of feeling of sort of calm, thoughtful, you know, kind of ninja skills is there as you play it. So a lot of dexterity games, you'll sit there, you'll try and work out the logic of whether or not something's going to work. You know, it's the maths. If I move this thing from A to B, is it going to fall over? And then it's, can I actually do it? You know, am I nimble enough? With floating floors, it is actually more thinky because that whole thing about saying, right, what is the weight balance here? What is actually holding this card up? Because I can't quite see it anymore because there's a card on top of it. Can I remember what's underneath this if I turn this round and I shift the weight? Um, is it sat on a couple of triangles and it's just going to fall off? What's another player going to do? The thinking part of it is much more dominant than it is in a lot of other dexterity games. And it feels like the game it should be. It feels like a silly ninja game. And it is a silly ninja game. So Floating Floors is great fun. Uh, it's, uh, um, I've really enjoyed it. Uh, every time I played it, sort of since I, I got my copy back in May this year. Um, and that's my number 10. I'm actually bummed I didn't think of that for my top 10 because that's one we had donated to the Melbourne Maples Library by Guff Studios. So Stella and Tarrant from Guff Studios donated that for us to be able to play and as a prize for MapleCon as well from the raffle. And I did have a go at it and I really liked it. I think it's a very cute game for all the reasons you've said. Like it's it's a great little game. It's a good little thinking game, easy to whip out when you've got a couple of people around. So good choice for number 10 for sure. So my number 10, I get it's not actually a new game, <laughs> but for me it was a new game, which was the Exit Advent Calendar. And Rod and I have been playing it since the start of December. I actually bought it way earlier in the year and it's not this year's Exit Advent Calendar. I'm pretty sure it was the first one they released and I managed to find it at the game store that's in North Melbourne. Spiel Deluxe? Spiel Deluxe. Mm -hmm. Yes, I found it at Spiel Deluxe on sale and went, you know what, I've been wanting to try this game. So I grabbed it back in probably like June and was like, oh, I'm just going to play it whenever because it's last year's advent calendar or something. And I, we still hadn't played it by the 1st of December. So Rod was like, hey, babe, why don't we play Exit? So that's been really fun. Obviously, we haven't finished it yet, but I really like the fact that for the advent calendar, they've broken it down into these bite-sized chunks that maybe take sort of between 5 to 15 minutes each day. So it's a nice little amount to sort of get your brain thinking and moving and have something to do each day without having a huge, you know, every single day you have to dedicate half an hour to this game and maybe you don't have half an hour. Like they're little snippets, but they have all the flavour of a normal exit game without being so big i think they're fantastic so if you don't have one go grab one from the board game store and it's very easy to catch up to wherever we're at and then on christmas day you can open up the last one did you say jen that you were doing the golden book do you know what's really bad is i don't actually remember the name of it 
<laughs> but it's the one that's got the mansion on the front and that becomes quite key during the game as well. I don't want to give too much away. That, but it's I think, got is the, the first big one, drawing yeah. Of, yeah. So it's really, yes, it is the golden book because you're looking, you're looking for the book. And, I, again, I don't want to give too much of the story away. But... It's it's very very good and definitely if you can find a copy of it, give it a go. Yeah, the, I've played the Exit Advent Calendar games for the last three years, and I think we're one year behind Germany. So the Golden Book was that was last year's, not the first one. And last year's, I think, is is not a cheat at all because it's kind of December twenty twenty two, which is close enough. Right, you know, kind of, it's 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 valid, and you couldn't really do this year's. So I'm doing this year's at the moment, which is called the Silent Storm. I think the first year's was called the Ice Cave, and each one of them has had some brilliant puzzles. <laughs> each one of them has had something which is like that was a great idea. It's a shame it didn't quite work. Where something's like, uh, you know, they've they've tried something a little bit too clever that maybe the consistency of high quality paper engineering wasn't enough to make it work in every single <laughs> box. Um, and there was one rather tricky manufacturing error in this year's but i do remember last year's being really 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 good so one thing to be aware of if uh, if you get the uh, silent storm one is that there there were a couple of tricky issues with the first two boxes or the first two days since then it's been brilliant we we've had one puzzle so far that we're like we really had to work it out. Like it, it seemed a little bit clunky and not quite in line with the rest of them. Um, and it took us a little while, but because of the way the mechanics of the game works and it, you have to then line up where are you going to, it's very obvious to tell whether or not you've got the right solution. So I like that they've got that fail safe in place where it gives you two different angles to get to the code and the door that you need to get to so that you can definitely make sure everything is lined up correctly. So if you grab a copy, you'll understand what it, I'm trying so hard not to spoil it, but yeah, you'll, you'll understand if you get yourself a copy, it does give you multiple ways that you can make sure you have got the correct answer to the puzzle. So my number nine, I first played wearing a off-white coloured mask. And this was entirely appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> I know exactly what it is. Yep. Yeah, looking sort of like straight ahead at the, at the opposition. Um, tinkling in the background was some music on a Spotify playlist going... It is... <laughs> I say, of course, because everyone can know what I mean. Um, Emerson Matucci's board game version of Halloween. And this it was a really good. S- surprise because it's like, okay, at Halloween, we release a board game based upon Halloween. It's a licensed board game based on a movie. It's probably going to be rubbish. Um, it isn't. Uh, it's effectively like a lighter version of um, Skepterops. So I can I even say that? Scepterops? Specterops? Specterops. Right. Specterops is Emerson Manchucci's slightly more involved hidden movement stealth spy espionage game. And Emerson Matsuchi is currently working on, or I'm not sure where it is in the production process, but the board game version of Metal Gear Solid, 
which of course is the ultimate sort of stealth action video oh, game. Oh, cool. Um, and so it's the best possible person to do a effectively a stealth hidden movement game based on Halloween. It's in many ways a similar game, but it's simpler. It's taken uh, you know a lot of the, the clunk out of it, so it's not a complicated game to learn at all. And it's incredibly thematic in that you basically have a map of the houses and the area around where um, you know the original film was set. You've got a bunch of cards with hidden stuff in it, uh, piles of cards rather, and the um, the inhabitants of the town, your Laurie Strode and her friends, are going around as survivors trying to find the things they need to do, which in this case is they need to rescue two kids, find at least one set of car keys, get into a car, get the hell out of there. And in that time, you're wandering around as Michael Myers with sort of hidden movement. The best mechanic in the whole game is that if one of the other players... Um, like if you run past so that they'd see you, you put some footprints down to show that they've seen you running past. But if one of the other players moves and they turn and face in the direction where they can see you, you just stick your Michael Myers figure exactly where it is. And that exactly replicates the feeling of Michael Myers just appearing randomly in the films when when you're like kind of behind a hedge. So it's like you'll, you'll see kind of someone making a move like that. And then sometimes you'll appear and actually you're in a position where they can then bash you over the head with a baseball bat or whatever they've got in their inventory. As often as not, you might be a bit further away. Sometimes you'll be in a position where that means that you are then going to be able to bash them over the head with, well, with your Michael Myers knife or whatever it is. Michael Myers is basically trying to get up a certain body count in order to win the game or to make sure that the game drags on for long enough because they can't get what they need. The players have a number of characters and they will have some of them die during the game. But as they swap them out, they'll then be able to get Dr. Loomis or the sheriff who come in armed so they can bring a, a you know a little bit more firepower to the event. It's just a simple, lovely, easy to teach, uh, lots of fun hidden movement game that actually feels like the film. And it's great fun. It's just like basically play the boogeyman or play all the people running away from the boogeyman. So that was a big surprise this year. I was amazed by how good it is. Halloween is my number nine. That's a really good choice. I know that's definitely a game that I saw you playing and went, oh, I definitely want to play that. So I know Joe and I have had plans that we want to go see, was it one of the Exorcist and Joe and I were like, oh, my God, let's go see that. And, of course, so many things have gotten in the way since now and then. But we definitely, I'm a big horror movie fan. And I know I look like, you know, all I'd want to watch is rom-coms and, you know, I'm fairly bubbly. So most people are like, oh, she'll be like really bubbly, happy movies. I am a true crime and horror junkie. Give me blood. Give me gore. You know, I love all that kind of stuff. It's it's so bad. <laughs> Definitely, we need to play that one sometime. Um, my number nine is, which is really funny, completely the opposite. A game that's come out, this is not a new game, but it is a new version of it, and it is the light, bubbly, happy Disney Dixit. It's so pretty. It's so incredibly pretty. I love Dixit as a game because it's, while it's quite an easy game, it's a really thinky game. And it's one where there's really good puzzles and stuff. Have you played Dixit, Chris? I'm sure you have. No, I don't think I've ever actually played Dixit. I played really? Mysterium and okay. sort of Dixit-esque games, but I don't think I've ever actually played just Dixit. 
It's so cute. It's a really good, I think that Dicks, it's a really good introductory game if you're trying to play a game with people who've not played many board games before because it's so open to interpretation. Basically, the mechanics of Dicks that are everybody has this hand of beautiful art cards and you have to pick a card from your hand, give a clue based on what that card has showing on it and put it down in front of you. The Disney Dixit one, I know the original Dixit, it just has to be one word that you give as the clue, I believe. Uh, But Disney Dixit can be an entire phrase, which is, I think, really, really good. It makes it a bit more family friendly. And then everybody has to look at their hand and find a card that they think matches that as well and put it in the pile and then they all get shuffled up and devied out and you have to guess which was the original one. So it's it's a really great little game for very easy mechanics, not a lot to it, but it can prompt some very funny discussions and everybody has a good laugh playing it. It's definitely, if you've not played it before, give it a go. Any version of Dixit is great. Actually, the original version of Dixit has many, many, many beautiful expansions with all sorts of gold foiling and things. And I have a sneaking suspicion, given the size of the Disney Dixit box and how many pieces actually come in it, they've got a lot of expansions planned because there's a lot more space in the box for cards than the number of cards you actually get. And how often is that the case? Very rarely. (laughs) Very, very rarely. So what's your number eight, Chris? So my number eight is, and I mentioned earlier, there was one game that I had put on my list that I've managed to play solo and I haven't yet managed to play multiplayer, but I enjoyed it so much and I can feel where I think the multiplayer game is going to go, um, that I decided to put it on my list regardless. And so this is going to be my number eight. My gut is that when I've played this multiplayer, knowing myself and knowing the game, this is going to go up. So this is number eight, but potentially could have been uh, in my top five. Uh, And this is a recently received sort of Kickstarter game by a new Italian uh, studio called Stranger Game Studios. And it's called Cabula. And Cabula uh, is a, effectively, you are playing explorers or invaders from Earth who have landed on a magical land. It's sort of RPG style. You've got this map, like beautiful kind of mountains, hills, and, and you've got like spaces which link then to cities and so on. And you go questing and you're going around. And in the middle of this thing is the tree of life that ensures that anyone who dies on the map will be reincarnated. And there is a guardian, which you pick from one selection of six to sit in the middle of this, who's guarding the tree of life. Now, as it is, you're trying to become stronger as you go through by finding encounters, by raiding dungeons, by kind of fighting or, in fact, taming some of the local monsters uh, in the landscape um, until you become strong enough to be able to steal the tree of life, at which point when you try and steal the tree of life, no one gets reincarnated and it's all of you versus the guardian, all of you versus each other, and whoever ends up with the tree of life uh, will eventually win. That last bit should hopefully emphasize the fact that in this game, you are not playing valiant, courageous explorers from Earth going into a, a sort of like corrupt and evil land. Actually, you're playing um, a bunch of 
assorted sort of morons and idiots from Earth who have landed in this magical land, which also has slightly moronic uh, animals and guardians and so forth, and are really just trying to earn as many hashtags as possible and as many kind of like social media bump-ups as possible. This is a silly, satirical, and funny take on, uh, you know, your kind of like typical sort of board game RPG adventure. And it is very, very funny. In some cases, because it, uh, the version I've got does have the packs, which are a little bit less suitable for work. In some cases, a little bit on the kind of uh, eyebrow-raising side. Um, so there is some content you'd want to filter out, if, depending on who you're playing with. Um, all of it is genuinely really funny. Some of it is almost like genuinely roll on the floor, kind of just stop everything, just laughing. You're just thinking, how did they come up with that? How did they think about that? Or that's just entertaining. And there's lots of content. All of the creatures are really funny. All of the powers that they have are really appropriate to those creatures. Um, you know, I'm in the middle of painting it at the moment, and I'm painting the the, the guardian that is effectively a uh, a horse that is a pyromaniac, but also is effectively modelled on like a, sort of one of those butch <laughs> Italians that collects cars and has a little bit of like an, um, a complex about being an alpha male, and so like wears like those kind of like oh, white vests and like has like a little kind of like a gold medallion around his, his head. Um, there's a, a another guardian that is a cross between a pig and a lion and the unicorn and therefore has a pig's back and has a huge insecurity complex around it um you've got i'm in the middle of painting like a um a sort of a hermit crab that lives inside a sort of recycled um coffee cup uh, and just representing kind of the litter that's strewn all over the landscape um there is it's full of wacky ideas but it's actually really really good everything in this game has been thought out with love, care, and attention. And one of the things that happened, they put it on Kickstarter and it failed the first time round, but they got a bunch of reviews. Oh, comments. really? When they came back and put it on Kickstarter again, they'd gone back and taken all the reviewer comments and feedback that they got and incorporated it all into the game, designed to make it better. Um, and even from that point, they were just thinking and thinking and thinking. And I'm really excited to see what Stranger Games Studios come up with next, because this is not your typical... Um, Dungeon Crawl game, it is not your typical, uh, you know, kind of wacky, hey, aren't we funny game, because it's actually funny. (laughs) It is something completely different. I've not played anything like it before. The solo bots work really well as well. The whole system works amazingly well. You level up in parts of your body. So you have all these like little bucketfuls of tokens that represent your different parts of your body, brains, you know, legs, teeth, or whatever it is. And all your attacks and everything utilize these different areas of strength in those. And then you can start accumulating more of those from attacking your enemies. And again, that's all funny because actually when you actually look at the attacks and the stuff you're doing and the body parts that are consumed in using them, it actually brings those things to life more in a very, very, very weird kind of way. Um, it's, yeah, it's phenomenal. There are bits of it where I look at it and go, this game, I don't know whether it would have trouble from the lawyers if it was any bigger. Um, I'm certain you know, Pokemon's lawyers don't get anywhere near it, but I think satire usually has a pretty good get-out clause from just about everything. Um, but Pretty much. It, it's absolutely awesome. So it was a small Kickstarter, but if you look at Stranger Games Studios, the game's called Cabula. It is really good and i think that is going to be i want to play it and it's gonna be number four when you showed it to me at board in the east last friday i was like oh my god that's hilarious and some of the cards and stuff you showed me i'm not going to mention which one i found particularly funny because it's a little bit not safe for work and we try and be as safe for work as possible in this podcast um 
but yeah, there's definitely some components in it that I was like, oh, that's brilliant. I definitely want to give that game a go. And while it looks a little bit cheeky, I think it's definitely cheeky that's been done in a way that's quite tasteful and funny. So I'm really looking forward to playing that one with you for sure. So my number eight is actually not a new game, but it's two of the new expansions for an older game that I think definitely make the game a lot better. And that's Lost Ruins of Arnak, the two expansions being the Expedition Leaders and the Ruins expansion. Definitely love, absolutely love the new expansions that they've brought out. I agree that it really does make the game a lot better. Like it's, that was the, sorry, the the Expedition Leaders. And what was the other expansion? Thank you, the Missing Expedition. They sound too similar. They're both expeditioning. So both of them um, I do think make the game a bit better. And I have them sitting on my shelf and this is so bad. I've played them on BGA or Board Game Arena, but I haven't actually played them in person because Lost Ruins is a game that I love, but I find that setting everything out in person, it's kind of like, you know, a game of Twilight Imperium or, you know, one of those big games like that. You've got to set aside quite a bit of time because there's so many moving parts for it. I find it easier to keep a track of on Board Game Arena, but I, I love it. I love, and there was another expansion I know came out for it quite quickly after it came out, but every single expansion that's come out from Four Lost Ruins of Arnak, if you haven't played the base game, don't worry, play it with the expansions <laughs> because if you play just the base game, you might go, oh, well, that's a bit boring because it's got some really good ideas to it, but the expansions really fix some of the the things that were missing in the original game. Like there was definitely a little bit of flavour that wasn't there and it's just made it that little bit more characterful and funny. And I think that's actually one of the things that I've found that doing this podcast has made me think very differently about board games and how I really approach them and really thinking about, well, why do I like that game? And what is it about that component of the game that really bugs me or something like that? And I think I've discovered for myself that I like games where there is a bit of a story to it, or you can make up a bit of flavor and story to it. And that'll be very evident when we get to my number one, which I don't think will surprise anybody. But Anything that does bring a bit of a story into it, yeah, absolutely. That that definitely gets me going. And I think that's probably because I started my creative sort of juices of the gaming world as a LARPer, not actually really playing board games as much as I, I'm a LARPer. So if you don't know what laughing is, it's live action role playing. I love creating a bit of a story. So, yeah, I think that probably explains a lot about probably all the games that I've really picked why I really like them, to be honest. I would, and it's a difficult thing to say because I'll go back and look at my collection and go, oh, no, no, but what about that one? What about that one? But just off the top of my head, uh, reacting to what you, you, you're saying there, Jen, and, uh, I would struggle to think of a better expansion, a more essential expansion to a game than the Expedition Leaders expansion to Arnak until you go back to, I don't know, Tuscany for Viticulture or something like that, you know, it's 
one of those expansions that is 100% mandatory in my book. And it takes a game that, while it was loved, was just a little dry. That's the thing about the original Lost Ruins. It did not feel, I mean, it's not meant to be fortune and glory. You know, it's not like roll your dice and see whether or not you manage to do an Indiana Jones Tarzan jump over a cliff. That's not what Lost Ruins of Arnak will ever be about. But it just didn't have any flavor to it, really. And then you bring in variable player powers, which lots of games do, but you bring in really good variable player powers and you give character to the people behind them and the powers seem to fit the characters and suddenly you can start telling that story. And then I think Missing Expedition, which I haven't properly played yet, starts to add more to that. It's an interesting thing, Jenna, the, um, the Missing Expedition. Have you played with that competitively online yet, the second expansion? I think... We started playing a game with it and then we all had to run off. So mm, no, I'm going to say no. <laughs> like I read through the expansion and went, this is great. Um, but no, I haven't finished playing a game with it though. So the the newest expansion, and I haven't played it, I know it adds the solo and the co-op, solo or two-player co-op sort of campaign. Or you can just kind of chuck almost everything in the box into your main game anyway. And that will include like new stuff, a couple of new characters that look great, like a couple of the best uh, best so far. It also has a whole bunch of event cards that provide drama to the story, I guess. You know, I haven't, haven't looked at them specifically yet. But you can also shuffle those in and you can add various like creatures that will cause draw an event card uh, and make different things happen. And of course, event cards make a game swingy. So the event cards look like they would both make it more thematic because suddenly again you'll have stuff actually occurring they'll also look like they will probably be at times unfair because you go and you draw an event card and the event card is not what you need it to be it's what somebody else would have needed it to be and so on and you feel you wasted your turn or you get something super powered that basically gives you exactly what you need um but if they make it more thematic i'm of the view that i don't care that is part of the fun of the game because right. you're telling the story of the game but I know a lot of people are going to hate them. So I know that that's going to be one of those things where I'll, I'll want to play with them and I'll say, right, do we put them in knowing that this might happen or do we leave them out? And I, I think it'll be 50-50 whether they stay in because I'll, I'll always go with the, what the other players want. It ups the ante even more, that's for yeah. sure. See, this is one of the reasons I I both love Mansions of Madness and at the same time, I'm like, oh, I could take it or leave it because it is a cooperative game and you're essentially playing against the system until someone goes insane. And this is why I kind of, I actually actively try during the game sometimes to make sure I do go insane or I do die because then I'm going to get some crazy other objective that means that, you know, and I think the my favourite game I've ever played of Mansions was where Rod went insane and, and turned into a pyromaniac and we ended up with the mansion on fire and he kept on trying to divert us all away from putting the fire out and we were like no, we need to put the fire out. And he's like, but if we don't do this thing, we're not going to win anyway. So if it burns down, it doesn't really matter because we're not going to achieve this thing. So let it burn and we'll come back and deal with it afterwards. But in essence, his goal for the game was for us all to get set on fire and for the mansion to burn down and that was his win condition (laughs) and he won. We all died in a blaze of glory and that, yeah, 
Yeah, we'll have to see what the event cards do. Yes. I don't know, we don't know yet. They could just be like just a little bit random. But the one thing that I can be feel confident in is that the designers of Arnak will have thought about what they put in there. They won't be just random and yes. hot because that's the thing that we've really seen is that they've put proper thought in trying to do everything really, really well. I think they really have thought it out quite well. So my number seven is the game that when I unboxed it, it took me ages to work out why it contained a guitar pick. And I thought, is this just a novelty guitar pick? I picked up the guitar pick and started strumming my guitar with it. And then I thought, hold on, I know what the guitar pick's for. And I put it back in the game box. So my guitar pick looks a little bit bashed at the end, but it does serve a purpose. So this is probably one of the most original games of this year. It's a lovely game and it's almost complete genius. It's one of those games where it has a feel that I think is quite meditative and you either get into it, but actually after a while you can start thinking, is it quite crunchy enough? It almost feels like it maybe goes on a little bit long or it can get a little bit aimless or you're not quite sure how it's going to flow. But it's also a lot of fun. And this is a game in which you are digging down through a five-layer game board as archaeologists or excavators of this mystical plane, removing different levels of the ground as you go to get to the bottom on what is one of the most impressive bits of game board engineering I've ever seen. And the game is called Ice, or sorry, it's a little bit more pretentious than that. The game is called I-C-E. The game's called Ice. Uh, why they had to call it I-C-E, <laughs> I don't know, and put the gaps between it just makes it harder to find on BGG. That makes it harder to find elsewhere. It's called ice, but effectively, ice is set on this um, uh, kind of this strange icy landscape where people are trying to explore down to get various artifacts and return them to their cities. And to do that, they're excavating these different layers of hex tiles. And then under the hex tiles, if they're at the top layer, they'll find a bonus that can do something with. But after that, it becomes more of a set collection game. They're trying to get certain combinations of stuff that they can then trade in for points by shipping them back to the city all the way through until you reach a mysterious artifact at the bottom. That mysterious artifact on the bottom then gives you a rule that will fall into play for the next time you play the game. So there's like a little bit of a sort of rotational thing here. Um, And the reason for the guitar pick is that the guitar pick is kind of useful in actually getting these tiles out. So where you're trying to dig these things out, you just put the guitar pick underneath and just flip them up with it. Um, And as you've got your workers, you'll have your little archaeologists and so forth that are sat on these tiles. And when you break a tile that's got some archaeologists near it, then they will fall in different ways into the, the, the... the areas underneath there, which will allow you to then go sort of exploring as you choose to uh, with those archaeologists in order to go and find more stuff. And it's quite a beautiful, magical game. It feels sometimes almost like a little bit, um, not style over substance is probably not fair, but it's almost that bit where there isn't as much tangible that you're grabbing onto. It's something where there's almost a dreamlike feel to it as you're kind of wandering through. So it's not a crunchy strategy game in that sense. And I think that's something which uh, it either is going to really click or you're going to be like, something isn't quite clicking with this game, Um, but there's nothing else out there like it at the moment. It is fun. It is engaging. It's beautifully produced. uh, And, you know, if it's certainly a major achievement uh, for the designers and the publishers. So uh, ICE is my number seven. I remember seeing you playing that at, was it the first board in the East? Maybe it was mm-hmm. the second one. Might have been your second. I think it was probably, might even have been third. 
But who knows? Yeah, it was playing. We were, I was playing it aboard in the East. Yeah. I remember seeing you playing it aboard in the East and thinking, wow, that looks so cool. I really want to play that. Ooh, obsession. And so <laughs> that's where, uh, yeah, I definitely want to give that game a go. It looks very, very cool. And. I love the idea of the mechanics where that is a game, I think, archaeology-wise, they hit the nail, absolutely hit the nail on the head with that one because that's that's what it's all about, right, digging down and discovering new things. So, yeah, good choice for number seven, absolutely. I actually changed my number seven while we've been sitting here chatting because I remembered the one I put in number seven I actually discovered last year, not this year. But one that I did discover this year, again, at BunnyCon, and thanks to you, Chris, was Transmissions. And if you haven't played Transmissions, it is the cutest little robot game you have ever seen. I love the mechanics of it. I love that it's not just, you know, another roll the dice and move up the board and that kind of thing. Like it actually has a little bit more to it. And the pieces are really cute. I love I love a game that's visual. You know, I we all know from me already that if it's pretty, literally like half the games I bought at MeepleCon, I looked at the box and went, oh, that's pretty. Didn't even read the mechanics of the game and just bought it. So I'm I'm a sucker for pretty visuals for sure. And it's just, it's cute. It's so cute. Like I really want to get my hands on a copy and it's essentially you're you're playing this game as, oh, my goodness, what's his name? You're essentially Wally in this game. You're going around and you're collecting things from the world as a little robot and trying to basically build your collection up so that it makes you happy, you know, and it's just there's not, I don't think, any sort of deep message in it. It's just a lovely, light, pretty little game with robots and butterflies and flowers and give it a go. Give it a go if you haven't. Get a hold of a copy if you can. I think it's a really good game that you could also play cross-generational like I I think it'd be pretty kid-friendly probably slightly older kids you know like eight and up rather than you know when I when I think of family-friendly games I'm usually thinking sort of five and up but I do think this is family-friendly if you've got kids that are a little bit older and you know have seen Wally or any kind of robot thing and they're really into it they'll love this game as well. It's I've forgotten all about transmissions. It's a lovely, lovely, cute game. <laughs> you taught it to me at BunnyCon. And I think it was fairly new to me when I got it there. So I think that might have been a game for, from this last year. I, I just have to check on BGG and just see what the, what, well, in fact, I can check on sort of Kickstarter and just see when I got my copy delivered, which is uh, how it would actually count. But no, it's a lovely, lovely game. And there is no, there is no story. Because that's one of the things it was based on the art of an artist called Matt Dixon, who draws these robots. And Matt Dixon is absolutely um, emphatic that there is no story uh, to these robots. They are where they are. They collect trash. They wander around. You know, they they do stuff with like whatever it is, like plumbing equipment and so on. And you can create a story if you want to, or you can see one, but there isn't one. 
It's just the art. So effectively, that's sort of been brought in. So that's why there's no sort of narrative explanation in the game or anything like that. It is just is what it is, and you make the story as you want it to be. Uh, but it's no, it's really a complete good choice. contradiction mm. to what I was saying, right? Yeah. You know, like I love a game with a good story, yeah. but it's a game that can tell a story. But then of on your the own. flip side, yeah, exactly. Exactly. I like that, you know, it would actually, thinking about that, it would be a really good tool to teach your children to build a story because there is no story behind the game. Get them to make it up as they go. Why are they collecting that? My my number six is uh, probably going to be more... I don't know. We'll have to see. We haven't had any crossovers yet, um, but is one that I know would be a crossover with a lot of people over the past month, given the enthusiasm for it. And it's a game I first discovered over a year ago on cutout bits of paper and so on, because I was playtesting it. And as happens when you playtest, uh, in, in this case, I was playtesting the solo mode, and the um, I then put it away once that playtest had finished, and kind of thought, I think this one is going to go down quite well with the Stonemeyer fan base when it comes out live. And then life went on, and this game appeared. And this game is a game um, about bees, or was a game about bees, but they thought, ooh, there already are games about bees. It's like honey buzz and stuff. Why don't we make it space bees? Um, <laughs> and uh, so, yes, the game is apiary or in fact, Space Bees, as it is now known. Um, I'm finding increasingly that nobody calls it Apiary. They just call it Space Bees. <laughs> and, uh, and so right, so everyone says, well, it's a game of Space Bees. Everyone's painting their bee or their big bee queenship. And it's a almost classical abstract Euro game, almost in the like, Italian school of Euro games, because it's quite like things like Tertiquacan and games like that. And I don't like those games particularly. There's something where they're just too dry. Apiary somehow manages to step above that because it moves quick. It flows fast. It flows energetically. There wasn't a game that was taught more at MeepleCon than Apiary. Yes. Uh, it, it seems to have hit the ground running. It does a few things that aren't particularly a unique or original really well in a way that it just clicks. And it's just that it's just a really yes. good, solid, enjoyable game that doesn't outstay its welcome even with five players. So my number six is Apiary. And Jen? My number six is Apiary. (laughs) (laughs) That's so funny. I love that both of us put it as number six. You know, it's it's almost, I think the only reason it didn't bump up for me above the one that I chose as my number five, which is you're going to be like, what, when I say it. But mainly because when I, the very first time I played it was after MapleCon. And I was feeling so tired and I had such a bad headache. And it was literally just that I've only played it the once. But even the one time that I played it, I went, oh, this is actually really good. And I think if I played this game again, I'd really love it. And the fact that it is Space Bees. Because who doesn't love Space Bees? Like, so cool to have them as Space Bees. And, yeah, we kept on calling it Space Bees as well. No one calls it a period. Space Bees. I think uh, about that is something that uh, I know sort of Jamie Stegmeyer will be uh, uh, very happy about, I suspect, because the, the, the design of the game, so, and you know, the new designer, Connie Vogelman, uh, it's a fantastic game uh, in that light. And I think Jamie's main contribution as a developer was saying, hey, let's make it Space Bees. 
I'm sure Jamie did a whole lot of other stuff as well. Uh, but ultimately, it's Connie's game. Uh, and that, I think, has worked. Uh, you know, I think it's made it a little bit more, more fun. I think having the big sort of queenship thing is fun. Uh, there's been some lovely sort of blinging up going on with people's uh, copies of Apiary. Uh, it, it's, just, it's, just a, it's just a great, nice, fun game. I don't think it's ever going to be like, you know, in lists of the top 100 of all time. I think it's going to be one of those games that you can always pull out because it doesn't take forever. It's not that hard to teach. It's really easy to teach. It's really, while it's got a lot of moving parts, once you get the mechanics of how the game works, it's relatively simple. You know, it's family friendly. It's just a really cute game that I understand why it's exploded and everybody loves it so much. It's just, it's really good. Well, with that in mind, why don't we switch across and I'll do my number five. Why not? Go for it. What's your number five, Jan? Absolutely. My number five is walk and roll. And I know that sounds so ridiculous, but I love it. I love it so much. I got a copy of walk and roll and its expansion, the Korean wave at MeepleCon. And it is effectively Yahtzee with a Chinese food menu. And I love it. It's so silly. I think it amps things up a little bit. And as you know, I keep on contradicting myself. I know I'm like, oh, I hate games that just roll the dice and play. But this one, this is cute because the way that the game works, everybody's got the same menu in front of them. Um, in just the base version anyway, it can it, it gets changed a, around a little bit as you, you go up and you do expansions and that kind of thing. But everybody effectively has their menu in front of them and you're trying to make dishes out of the dice that are rolled so that you complete your menu or a section of your menu first. And what I really like is that there are four white dice and two red dice. And the person that's rolling the dice gets to use all of the rolled dice. But everybody else on their turn can only use the four white dice. So if you get really strategic about it, you can stuff everybody up completely by making sure that the two red dice that you keep are ones that make it really easy for you to make dishes, but the other four you can't really make a dish or something out of. Like it it's definitely, definitely a really cute game to be a bit competitive and cutthroat. And they could probably rename it Cutthroat Kitchen Walk and Roll and it would it would probably suit pretty well. But yeah, it's it's great because kind of like with Yahtzee, you get to roll the dice three times. You can't go, well, I'm putting that one aside, or you don't have to go. And putting that one aside and not rolling it again. You can literally just roll the entire hand three times if you want to. You can put some dice aside in the first roll, do another roll and go, oh, no, that doesn't work, and then roll everything again in your last roll if you want to. So it's quite flexible. It's quite fun. It's quite silly. It's very visual. The graphics are cute. And it's definitely, again, I'm loving the family-friendly games. I keep saying this, I don't have kids. I don't at all, but I love games that are intergenerational where you can introduce kids to games. You know, I've got many, many, many nieces and nephews and running board in the West, we have lots of families that come with kids. So I love that 
we're getting a bit more of a collection up of games that are more intergenerational where we can introduce people to games and they are a little bit easier, but they're still fun and engaging. And Walk and Roll and the Korean Wave, I definitely think are fantastic for that. So if you can find a copy, get yourself a copy. They're cheap, they're cheerful, they're fun. My number five is probably the game on my list that is the hardest to get a copy of. And it might be and it might not be. I need to actually have a look and see whether or not there's sort of copies of it left because it's a very indie little game. But I am obsessed, as I think has come across on multiple podcasts, with the kind of escape room puzzle in a box type games. Uh, and and so Jen, Jen's put one on this list already. And exactly, I think it would have been impossible for there not to be one on, on my list. And I've played, as well as the exits and unlocks and so on, I've got very into some of the more creative games being done by uh, organizations like Post Curious. Uh, I have um, the Medusa Project and the Vandermist dossier coming to me from uh, a Kickstarter at some point soon. That's stuck in uh, a I think a warehouse somewhere in Holland on its way over. Uh, I love playing these games. Some of them go to ludicrous levels of bling to a point where even I've had to say, look, I'm not playing that for something that'll last three hours. There's a game called Mother of Frankenstein that has, I think, some of the most beautiful components for a puzzle game I've ever seen, but it's just like the uh, cost per hour of play is just so ludicrous. You can't really justify it. But um, this year I played a game that wasn't by any of those creatives that was in this uh, genre it was designed by a guy called spencer beeb who likes designing puzzles and he put together a a kind of escape room in a box thing where it was based on a pack of playing cards each pack of a playing card in the pack had a puzzle that was built into it some of those puzzles involved different combinations of cards so it wasn't one puzzle per card you had like 52 puzzles but some of them would be one per card some cards would be involved in multiple puzzles you might have a puzzle that involved like almost the entire deck or like all of one suit you might have other ones that are just one card or two cards three cards and it was relatively easy to work out how to do it it was integrated with the website which in this case is a good thing um and it will be almost a spoiler to say some of the things that are fabulous about it. But this little pack of cards, this little box called Lost in a Shuffle, and I've played a lot of these games, is single-handedly the best example of this type of game, Exit, Unlock, Post Curious, what it is that I have played in the last few years, if not ever. It is brilliant. Uh, Jen, I will dig out the copy of I've Got Somewhere and I will pass that over to you because I've obviously already played it. Um, it is... Instead of taking a sort of serious bent or being like really left field, like some of the unlock and exit ones could be where it's like, you know, you have something and you're just going, well, I don't quite get this. You know, maybe I get this. There are so many different imaginative ideas in here. It's just ridiculous. But the best way to describe it is that it takes the spirit of the video game portal and puts it into a, um, effectively into a puzzle game. Uh, the creator of the game has recorded a bunch of little videos which are there as you go on when you uh, get enter into the game about how you're involved in a big kind of psychological experiment with getting these cards. As you get a certain amount of the puzzles, you start getting little power-ups to help you identify how many different things you've got left to solve. The amount of different things where you go, hold on, what have you thought of that? Bits of internet research you end up doing, the bits of investigations, the things you learn playing this game. Um, uh, there are... A handful of American cultural references in there, which for those that aren't from the States will require some Googling, but not difficult Googling to work out. There was nothing on there that had me stumped forever. There was stuff on there that had me stumped for a while. 
it's amazing that in what is effectively a pack of 52 cards modeled on a playing card deck and a website and a few clever things that they've done, and it would be a real spoiler to spoil everything that's there, that effectively one guy in his bedroom has created what I think is the best example of the genre, hands down. So um, it's called Lost in the Shuffle. The design is called Spencer Beeb. Um, I'm don't know whether he's still got copies, but if there is, I'm sure he'll ship them sort of wherever. Uh, um, and I'm so excited to see what he does next. If you can get hold of a copy of it and you like that kind of game, do it. It's fantastic. I definitely um, want to have a look at that because I know that's a game that we were chatting about previously. Like I know you've you've definitely told me about it previously and I would love to get a hold of a copy. I would love to borrow your copy because it sounds like it definitely right up my alley. I love all those kind of games, you know, games that make you think and do puzzles and problem solve. Love them. So I'm in. I know that the other one that you gave me as well, I haven't had a chance to play it yet, um, but it's I've been waiting for my sister and brother-in-law to arrive because I wanted to play it with them and I know that they'll really love it because my brother-in-law particularly, massive board game fan, we should definitely have him on as a guest on the podcast sometime because he's played so many different games and yeah, looking forward to giving that one a go. Absolutely. It sounds really, really good. So I've just had a look, Jen, or chatting, just to say it is it is still available from him at spencerispuzzling.com. Uh, spencerispuzzling.com. It's, it's $24.99 US dollars. Uh, and I don't know what the shipping would be like to Australia. So that would be the, the pain, but it is only a small deck of cards and that's how big it is as well. So it's not a, it's not a huge thing to post. So um, it is definitely still, uh, still available on the market. Do you know the last time that I had to ship something from the US, even though it was only a small thing, like it was, oh my goodness, I think it was only $8 or something US. The shipping on it was $35 and I was like, absolutely not. It was like a, it was a little, um, a couple of little feet for my sewing machine that I found cheaper on a website in the US that I could get them walking into a store in Australia and went, oh, my God, $8, fantastic. I'll buy that. The shipping won't be that much. $35 shipping. It was cheaper to walk down to Spotlight and go grab one. Yeah, that's so, off, often the case. Every now and again you'll get someone who will ship incredibly cheaply. But then I got like uh, when I got Mechs and Minions, I ordered that from the US, which is still the most ludicrously cheap game for its production value and size there's a, a game box that is absolutely enormous so it's about 10k i think the shipping from the states was like 14 bucks and it's what? like huge <laughs> absolutely massive it's one of the biggest happen? game boxes i've got it happens because it's made by the league of legends people and they have so many bucket loads of money that basically they've just said look this was a labor of love we just want people to be able to get it i think they're just taking a, um, a loss on it I think that they've taken a loss on the whole production and they don't care because they just make that much money on the uh, video game that inspired it. Uh, but it's, yeah, Mex, Mex versus Minions is phenomenal, but that's a, that's a separate discussion. Jen, what's your number four? I cheated a little bit here. So my number four is two games and it's 18 holes and 10 wickets only because 
they're by a designer who I know, whose name is Ryan Boucher. Um, he frequently comes to Board in the West and I've looped both of the games together because I'm not usually a sports person, not at all. But he's done such a great job of designing both of these games that it sounds sounds really mean to even say it, but I can overlook the fact that they're about sports because they're such fun games to play. And I know for some people that'll just make it 10 times better because maybe they love golf or they absolutely love cricket. So for them, the fact that those games are about that as well makes it 10 times better. But to create a game that's so good that I can overlook two sports that I frequently joke with people are so terrible because cricket is literally just a picnic with a bit of a ball tossed around as far as I'm concerned. And golfing is basically walking with a stick and ball, you know, like... Both of them are really, really fun games. Um, I know we had a tournament for 18 holes at MeepleCon and everybody that participated were people who hadn't played it before and the person who won it was like, I never, ever would have picked up this game if I'd just seen it on a shelf because it's about golf. But they're so good and there's so many really fabulous little components 10 wickets, most people will not have seen this yet because it's only just been delivered on Kickstarter and I happen to be quite lucky that I live about five minutes away from Ryan. So he messaged me and said, hey, it's arrived if you want to come grab your coffee and I've got your coffee as well, Chris. We've been able to actually have a go at it where a lot of people haven't but definitely in the new year. Keep an eye out for 10 wickets. I'm really, really hoping that it becomes available in stores as well because for a cricket game, it's really, really good. Saying this from the point of view of someone who hates cricket. So <laughs> that that should give you an idea of how good these games are. I mean, 10 wickets is a card game, which is essentially you're trying really, really hard to get the highest score out of your game by being strategic about which players you're putting out at which times and, you know, how many wickets you're taking as opposed to are you going to collect wickets or are you going to collect players because both of them give you points in different ways and I love a game that makes me think and is a puzzle solver and strategic and both of them are so, so good for that. Ryan's games are great, and he is actually. Have to be careful what we say here, know, but there are other designs that he's got, kind of that he's been working on and, and sort of sharing in the local groups that aren't sports based. And there's some real indications that they are not just going places, but actually getting some really, really good attention. And that I think we'll be seeing quite a lot more of Ryan uh, over the years. I wouldn't be that surprised if he was a household name game designer in maybe three years time two or three years time so we'll see how things go and that's a lot of that's just to do with the speed of the uh you know how long it takes to take something from conception to actually get it out there and get it played and, and to get around but i i think i see big things for for ryan um also if you are playing 18 holes do not ignore Absolutely. the chaos golf mode easily the most board game way of playing no. that game <laughs> he actually said to me when um i told him we were doing a tournament at MeepleCon, he's like i'll oh, do the ga- do the chaos version because it's so much better. And I'm like, okay, cool. (laughs) So (laughs) I think Ryan agrees with you on that one. So what then 
<laughs> what then is uh, your number four, Chris? Right, so my number four is a semi-cooperative game. Because for those that know me know I love semi-cooperative games. And it's quite a new semi-cooperative game. It's a fun, light, easy-to-play card game in which it's a trick-taking game, in fact, where you are trying to meet various different trick-taking targets, except somebody around the uh, table is trying to ensure that you don't succeed in doing so. Um, Very, very simple, very straightforward, very easy to teach, and a bucket load of fun. It's inside job. And in terms of just the kind of light-hearted, fun card games that also introduce people to sort of semi-co-op mechanics and how semi-co-op can be fun because some people are a bit kind of about semi-cooperative games. It's a great little game. Um, it's great to have a game like that that's not a social deduction game. It, obviously, all semi-co-ops have a little bit of that because you're trying to work out who the traitor is, but you know it's not really a social deduction game. You're trying to work things out from the way that you play your tricks. And every trick you play has a different objective. As you take on the slightly more complicated modes, you can kind of bid and barter with various different resources. You've got these suitcases that effectively allow you to sort of soup up what you can achieve. And that can be good for the group because it can kind of accelerate things or it can avoid too many of these getting banked up with one person. But if the traitor gets too many of these, they're going to be able to stop and win the game. Um, It's actually not an awful lot to say about Inside Job, apart from that it's really good, really accessible. It's just a great, great, super fun card game. I've actually, I haven't played it myself, but I know that, I don't even think it was you I was talking to about it. Someone at Board in the West was telling me about Inside Job and I was like, hmm, I'm going to have to try that one sometime because it looks very, very good. So you'll have to bring that along for a Board in the West, Chris. So we're up to number three. We're getting pretty close. Uh, My number three is a very cute game that... Again, this one's a visual one, sucker for a cutesy game, one that I'm sure all of us have absolutely loved and enjoyed going to Yum Char at some point and seeing all the cute little buns everywhere that you can grab and it's Steam Up. If you have not seen Steam Up, you have to go have a look at a copy. It is a very simple game all about grabbing the yum char that your particular character really, really loves and getting the highest score possible. So a very simple game in essence, but grab a copy of the Kickstarter version if you can, the deluxe version of it, because the little plastic pieces that look like actual little yum char buns are so cute. It's adorable. Like it, It's one that I've pulled out just to show people so they can see how cute the pieces are. And we've spent ages just sitting talking about the adorable pieces and memories around going out to Yum Cha for lunch. You know, that it's a great little game, definitely competitive. It falls into that cute and competitive category again. But even just reading through some of the character sheets for the characters that you can play in the game, they're very, very funny. And I particularly love the Picky Piggy. The Picky Piggy is so, so cute. There's even, there's a vegetarian character in the game and they're just, they're adorable. So if you've not played Steam Up yet, grab yourself a copy. Really fantastic little game. Again, Another Guff Studios game. So that was another one that's been donated to our library by Stella and Tarrant from Guff Studios. 
and it's been incredibly popular. I know at MapleCon I saw it whipped out quite a bit. Have you actually had a go at it, Chris? I've not had a go. I've seen it many times and, yeah, it has it has a really, really, really impactful table presence. It makes you hungry. I love yum cha and I don't go out for yum cha that often because um, my, my, my wife's um, – wheat free which actually restricts what you can have and yum char is best something enjoyed as a group because otherwise you end up just eating loads of the same thing you need a, a big group of people and it's just not happened but i i love that so i look at the uh, that game and it just immediately just makes my mouth watering and i just want to go and eat i'm not sure if that's the healthiest thing that you can get from a game but it is just gorgeous looking do you know there's actually mm-hmm. a couple of really good yum chars in or yum char restaurants in glen waverley and uh, sorry, in Springvale, which is not far from where you live, where they do have a lot of gluten-free options. So I'll get some names for you. Springvale is like, uh, for anybody that doesn't know the East of Melbourne, Springvale is a little pocket of chaos in the middle of basically not a lot. Like industrial estates and you get into Springvale and it's like suddenly it's just, what, what? Which makes you completely delirious and attempting to park up and go to the shops there. It's just like, why didn't I just get the train? But it's wonderful. It always feels like a, a little kind of a, Oh, it's so good. A, almost like another world, just sort of hidden, um, hidden in the middle of what feels like the middle of nowhere. Uh, but it's not that far out. It's, it's a beautiful little place. So my number three, and now we're getting on to the, the big hitters uh, here. Uh, my number three is um, probably not going to surprise anybody that this is on a top 10 list this year. I suspect it's on bucket loads of top 10 lists this year. It's been on many of the ones I've seen. I started wondering whether it actually counted as this year when I was putting it on the list because I was thinking I knew I discovered it this year. Um, then I realised it quite clearly was this year because it was on everybody else's this year as well. It's the game that some people thought was the Ark Nova killer. It's Earth. One year we had Ark Nova, big nature game, lots and lots and lots of cards, lots of different ways you can get combos, lots of different ways everything plays off against each other. Every card's unique. And then the following year, you get Earth. Lots and lots and lots of cards. Every card's unique, lots of combos and stuff. And then so many people have gone, Earth is the best thing since sliced bread. And then you go, well, Ark Nova's the best thing since sliced bread. These games are not as similar as it may look at all. Earth, for those that haven't played Earth, is probably a lot less thematic than Ark Nova. Ark Nova, you know, really does sort of lean in. You can start seeing the zoo you're building and everything like that. Earth is actually more of a quick fire game. Um, what makes it amazing in terms of the combo building is the same thing that I think you were talking about with walk and roll. It's that you're never idle. You pick an action and you take an action that you're going to do, and then you get to take a stronger action and everybody else gets to take a slightly weaker action. It's got that kind of follow mechanic. And the um, that means that as you're playing Earth, you're always playing. You're never waiting for anybody. Then when you're playing, you'll get combos where now I can do this that bounces off this, that allows me to do this, that now I do this. And you're setting up all these different combinations with your little four by four grid that you're building as your island. And the fun of oh i can do this and now i can do this oh what about that and now i can do that and what about this bit over there it creates that kind of dopamine wave where suddenly you're like going, ooh, ooh, fun 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 the pleasure hits that come from playing earth are what have made it a really really popular game because it is just like oh cool thing cool thing cool thing cool thing you're doing this the whole time you can't really sit there that much in game where everybody else is in the game you get to the end of it work out who's won 
do you really care? I think one of the arguments about Earth has been said is that, well, you can get better at it, but actually, how random is it? To what extent do you hit all these things? And there's so many different combinations of stuff that you could be doing that actually you've got the, is, can you really have a strategy in this game at all? Do you just have to play it as tactics? I think it is a more tactical game than a strategic game, but it's a hell of a lot of fun. I haven't played it yet. I really want to have a go. I know you've you've talked about it a few times, but I don't have a copy. I haven't played it. I would love to get a hold of a copy. Or again, Board in the West, Board in the East, we'll have to have a go sometime. I think Earth will be a mainstay for some time. Uh, and I, it's, it'll be one of those games where the only reason that you don't get to play it is because you want to play something else that particular evening. But I don't think there'll ever be a challenge with that. I think people will be playing Earth for a fair while. I, I'd, I'd be interesting to see which one of them between Earth and Ark Nova is, has the most longevity if you like, and which one, you know, stays or whether they both stay the ground, whether they become evergreens, whether either of them kind of like slips back a bit. It'd be really, really interesting to see just where that goes. It's a lovely, elegant, well-designed, slightly chaotic, very, very fun card game. It sounds a little bit like the game that we were playing, that Rod and I and there were two other people playing it at Board in the East. Is it, It's a Wonderful World? Yes, I can actually, yeah, because that's uh, that, that's one of like you just you go combo after combo, and I think you've got to play it's a wonderful world more times than I've played it, yeah, in order to actually know what you're doing. Yes, <laughs> I kind of picked up very quickly. I picked up very quickly the idea of that game is to get yourself a really good combo and focus on what your character wants, and I can't remember if. I think Rod and I scored very closely to each other. Like there was only one point separating us, but we well and truly got much higher scores than the other two people playing the game. And I think it's just because both of us are very used to playing those games where you just focus on one thing and building that up and knowing that focusing on that one thing is going to get you the highest score. But I also like about that game that it's very much a – um, everybody plays at the same time. Those are those are good games that everyone plays at the same time games because they keep everybody really, really engaged, especially for people who have ADHD. Yeah, amen really to that. Good. And I think, <laughs> I think actually It's a Wonderful World, it's a completely different game to Earth because it's a drafting game and so on. But actually it's not a bad comparison in terms of the feel of the games. Mm. Uh, that's that's quite a good one. Uh, and and that's it's a wonderful little game, It's a Wonderful World, because it... It actually, on you describe it, it, sounds pretty generic, pretty ordinary, really. You know, it's got nice art, but yeah, it's pretty ordinary. But it's not. It's just, it's just really, really, really well designed, and and it gives you that combo buzz. Um, and and so Earth, yes, it's a similar feeling. My number two is very silly and very cutesy, and definitely a game that I picked up before I had any idea of how to play it because I looked at the box and went, that is ridiculously cute. I need to own that. And it's Plantopia. (laughs) It's a really, really silly little game that is a card game all about building a garden and you need seriously pause the podcast, go to YouTube, search the video for how to play Plantopia and you'll either love it or hate it because it's this totally cutesy little video done in this little anime style voice and the cards are all like 
puns. So you've got the geometry and the symmetry and the instead of tulips, it's tulips. And it it's so silly, but I love it because it's really cute. All the cards have this beautiful texture to them where they've got a lovely little design about them as well. There's all these really flashy, shiny, holographic cards in there. So for somebody who's really visual, this game's fantastic. If you're playing with kids, it's a really great game again, like we're sensing a theme here, a really good game that you can whip out and play with the family. It's a really good game that's got a lot of dad jokes in it. So it's got a little bit of something, I think, for everybody And it's a super easy game. Like it's literally you need to build your garden and the first person to have four established trees in their garden um, ends the game and then you figure out who has the most magical leaves and that person's the winner. So super easy premise, super cute game, not a huge amount to it other than visually it's super, super cute and pretty and I'm a sucker for super cute and pretty. Yeah, and it's fun to play. It is very fun. Awesome. What's your number two, Chris? So my number two, and when when I wrote my list, I, my guess was that I would have either one or two crossovers with you. There's not much room left for this one to cross over, but this is the other one. I wondered whether or not it would be on your list as well or whether or not it wouldn't be. So it would. Uh, uh, we'll, we'll obviously find out in, in a moment. Um, but uh, So my number two is a new version of an old classic game an old classic game that I hold very dear, that, Jen, you hold very dear, that makes it a little bit more mobile, is one word, but yes, possibly a little more dynamic. And this is the latest version of Clank, uh, Clank Catacombs. This almost needs no introduction, in particular, if you listen to the podcast, we've talked about Clank before um, many, many, many times. Clank is brilliant. It's one of the best game systems around. It's one of the best implementations of deck building around. The only reason that I ever got into playing Dune Imperium was because of the fact that it effectively took the Clank system and then evolved it because it was the same designer. And the only reason the game about Dune, which I find intensely dull. Sorry, there's a theme. But the game's fantastic because it basically steals a whole bunch of stuff from Clank. But at the same point, Clank, here is Clank. Clank, as you all know and love it, except that suddenly your map is adaptable and evolving as you go. And by the way, sometimes it might have like rotating tiles and ghost tiles and stuff like this. So it makes it a bazillion times more dynamic on the table um, than it otherwise was. And this to me was just like icing on the cake. I'm still not sure whether Clank in Space with like a couple of the expansions thrown in, for particular the new sort of arcade machine ones, which is quite a lot of fun. Is that my favourite Clank or Catacombs, which is actually almost a little bit more sort of like stripped back, but it's got the flexible board. But the moment I lean towards Catacombs, because it's just done so well, right? You know, kind of the component quality on the tiles is not amazing. That's been one of the things when uh, Direwolf sort of took back their IP from Renegade, the component quality has gone down in a couple of places. Um, but it's good enough, right? And the actual game, it just it just sings. It's beautiful. It's more Clank. It's Clank with a map that's never the same. Um, it's Clank with a map that twists and bends as you go, which just feels so appropriate for Clank when you can suddenly find that your location uh, moves and suddenly you're stuck in the middle of nowhere instead of like two steps from escape. Um, 
yeah, it's just a phenomenal game. The only reason Clank Catacombs was not on my list is because I knew it would be on yours. <laughs> and it's such a good game. I agree with you. I almost, almost, almost put it on my list and then went, no, there's a couple of other ones I want to shout out that I think were really good. And I knew we'd chat about it anyway, but <laughs> I agree. I think it takes Clank to the next level. And I know you haven't played it yet, but I can't wait to either play with you the, you know, um, Clank Legacy. I love the fact that Clank is one of those games that you can play it over and over and over again, and every time you play it, it's a little bit different. Um, It's a really good crossover game in terms of new people can play Clank. So if you've never played a board game other than Monopoly ever, ever before, such a good introductory game that shows people that board games can be so much more than just rolling a dice, paying a, paying for a piece of property and then being indebted to the bank for the rest of your life, which, gee, that doesn't sound like real life at all, does it? You know, like it's, Clank is a really good way to show people how fun board games can be and all the different versions of it have their own amazing merits. So very, very good choice as a number two. And I guess that brings us to our number one and nobody's going to be surprised about my number one. I banged on about it all year long. I think it's been the discussion of almost every podcast episode since I got it for my birthday this year, but it's Obsession. It's such a good game. It really is such a good game. If you love marrying Mr. Darcy, if you love anything to do with Jane Austen, if you love a game where it gives you the opportunity to make silly, fun games up about it or silly, fun stories up about the characters that you're playing with. It's absolutely fantastic. It is so well designed. I'm so looking forward to the new Kickstarter components coming out. I haven't yet bought myself the expansions other than the Kickstarter one only because Rod and I have a rule and that rule is for the the two months before Christmas, we are not allowed to buy things that we really, really want for ourselves to give each other the opportunity to buy things that we do really want. And I'm going to have to make sure he doesn't listen to this version of the podcast, but he's getting something. You know what? I'm not even going to say what it is. He's getting something for Christmas that is a board game that he's been wanting for the longest time and every time we are somewhere that has a copy of it he's like oh my god babe look they've got it and I'm like no we just can't afford it right now (laughs) and it's been really annoying right before Christmas to be like oh no not that thing that it's perfectly reasonable that we should buy and I have to come up with another excuse as to why we now can't have it But I've had to do the same with Obsession. And every time I've seen the Obsession expansions and wanted to buy them, I've been a very good girl and I haven't bought them to give him the opportunity to buy them for me for Christmas. And I don't even think now I am actually getting them for Christmas. But he might surprise me. We don't really need to repeat it because we've said it on the podcast so many times. Obsession is basically, for both of us, it's just one of the games of forever. And I know, Jenny, so you discovered it this year because it's not a this year game, so it's on your list for that reason. But if we were doing any kind of a like top 10 list I, of all games of all time, I think we'd both struggle not to put Obsession somewhere in that top 10. 
it is it's just phenomenal uh, absolutely amazing game so my number one will again for people that have listened to the podcast if they've taken any sort of punts over the last year and kind of thinking what hasn't he mentioned or so forth what is the game that that chris was a little bit obsessed about that hasn't come up yet in this then you'll probably guess it so i like games with a little bit of chaos in them as you may have seen from some of the games on this list we talking about cabula earlier so earth has that client catacombs has that um you know that slightly sort of chaotic craziness about it all of those their chaos and craziness does not equate to the chaos and craziness in this game in this game there are not you know, just your player characters on the board, there could be up to like 25 characters on the board and they're all different and they all want different things and you're one of them, but you could be another one and no one knows which one you are and you're all running around with different agendas, except you might not be. And at the same point, you're all in a space station that's going to crash to Earth in 11 seconds and are you going to get hit on the head by the uh, by the chimp who's raiding around with a hammer because he just wants to steal shiny things? <laughs> or is the guy who's got his little top R carnivorous plant going to set it on everyone and eat them all? Or is somebody going to let the strange scientific experiment out of the uh, uh, like high security enclosure and they're going to ramp around all over the ship destroying stuff is someone going to try and blow the ship up or someone rescue them trying to blow the ship up can you escape the ship in the most daredevil possible kind of way because actually you want to do that how many people got rescued do they know stuff they shouldn't uh this is the craziest game of the year station four and there is i knew that was going to be your top on your top 10 at least yeah there is not another game in existence like Station Fall. Station Fall is not a short, lightweight game. In fact, it's arguably a simulation because a lot of the rules in it are really sort of simulate what it would be like if you were on this space station plummeting to Earth in 13 minutes. But at the same point, it's also completely chaotic. You're taking these movements. You can kind of predict what other people would like to do. Above a certain player count, you actually have joint victors and joint losers. So you've got to remember that it's not necessarily just one person winning the game. Two people can win the game if you, if you go higher. Um, you are really just trying to work out the best way to do what you need to do and then watching us other people either on purpose but more often by accident completely scupper it and so on um station fall once you get into the rhythm of it though flows really beautifully it's uh characters and the characters have been created brilliantly i got the miniatures i painted the miniatures quickly because that's almost essential to really work the game and to their credit i believe the publishers who are looking at a second edition are going to put some standees in there um, it comes with these lovely wooden counters but standees are better because you want to see the characters on the ship right because you want to know very quickly who's who who's where who's they're doing and that was the only fault in the original box where it had these lovely little kind of like wooden tokens that just made that a little bit too hard to work out at a glance um it's I mean, there's a lot we could say about Station Fall, but I've said it before on previous episodes of the podcast. You may hate it. You could love it. <laughs> Station Fall is not a game of halves. It's a game that's going to take two or three hours of your time to play. It's potentially a bit of an event game. It's a game that if you play again and again and again, you start learning different ways of strategizing it. But if you're playing with people who are learning those, then they get counteracted and it goes back to being chaos. So it's just, it's just crazy. And for the sheer beauty and love and attention that went into that game and the amount of fun I have playing with it, uh, Station Fall is 100% my number one of 2023. Very good choice for uh, number one of 2023. And, you know, I actually found something recently that you prompted me that I forgot to tell you about. When I was looking around on Thingiverse, 
And if you don't know what Thingiverse is, it means you're not into 3D printing. Thingiverse is basically a giant library online of free 3D printing files and they have various different versions on there of the board game storage inserts for Stationfall, which I know the game itself doesn't come with the most organised box. Come on, how many board games do you actually come with the most organised box? But I did see recently, and it looks like it's now come down off of Thingiverse, but somebody had created little... 3D printable characters for all the different characters in Thingiverse, but it's not on there anymore. So I don't know. I've got 3D minis, and I guess that would be, you know, if somebody was putting the 3D printable versions of their minis up, then that might be a little bit dodgy from a copyright perspective because you can go and buy the miniatures. So I've got the miniatures, but no, no, I love, I mean, some of the inserts that you get printed off are great. They weren't the standard ones, though. They seem to be somebody else's art interpretation of the Station Fall characters that they turned into their own minis that were a little bit more sort of Looney Tunes character style ones that I was like, oh, I have to remember to tell Chris about this. But they're not there anymore. But there are some very good versions now on Thingiverse of uh, board game storage for Station Fall. So definitely worth having a look at that i really want to play it i know that we've we've been talking about it since BunnyCon, and i i want to arrange a day that we all get together and have a game of station fall because it sounds really fun and chaotic and silly so yeah i definitely definitely want to give that one a go that's for sure so that's our top 10 for the year and i think that leaves us to wish everybody If it is before Christmas and you listen to this, have a really fabulous Christmas. If it's just after Christmas, I hope you had a really good, fabulous Christmas and have an awesome new year. Uh, Thank you to everybody who has been, uh, if you've listened to the podcast from wherever you are in the world, if you've been coming to and playing at Melbourne Meeple's events and so forth during the year, if you've been coming to sort of our conventions and making them the special place that they are, um, just thank you so much. We have a wonderful board game community. In, in Melbourne and it's just been a great year and thank you to everybody who's been coming up to Chris and I at our events and saying hey we listen to the podcast and we love it and we've got this idea for you or that idea for you we love getting your feedback it's really exciting for both of us that you know so many people are actually listening because we started this really just as you know oh look there's this little extra thing that we can do with Melbourne Meeples and a, another avenue that we can talk about one of our favourite things in the world, board games. But the fact that we've had so many people come up and say, oh, we love listening to the podcast because we've, you know, we learned about this or we learned about that. It's really heartwarming to know that just something that Chris and I do because we find it super fun, you're all enjoying as well. So thank you so much. We super appreciate the support. I think we really should give a big shout out as well to the people that support Melbourne Meeples in general. You know, so those of us that, or those people who are members, thank you so much to our members. We could not do this without you. To all the different vendors who come along to MeepleCon, who made the Melbourne board game market so incredibly successful, you know, the people that are donating to the raffle, the people who are donating to our board game library, 
you know, we can shout out so many different vendors. So Mind Games, that's been there pretty much from the start. Turn Order Games, very new store in Noble Park. If you haven't checked it out, definitely go check them out. They've been so supportive of us. Granger Games, new board game store that's opened up in Mooney Ponds. And we've got Gameway who've been at so many of our events and supplied their beautiful tables for us. Purple Meeple Games, <laughs> you know, who are always there to donate games to the raffle for us. Uh, Cardtastic, Malora Day Dice, Shani bringing her absolutely beautiful dice for us to MeepleCon. It was the second this year that she was there um, and just everybody who's come along and made all of our events so amazingly fantastic. VR Distribution, who also have been really, really fantastic. I think you should talk about the haul, Chris, that they gave us for MeepleCon. That was amazing. So with that, VR Distribution not only donated an absolutely massive haul for the raffle, and I think that kind of, you know, looking at some of the prize things that were up there had a huge impact on the amount of money that we raised for Beyond Blue at MeepleCon, which was, yeah, it was our biggest, uh, biggest haul yet. $1,500. 1500 bucks. It was right. insane. It's just, yeah, it went for a one-day raffle. That's pretty damn good. Um, and the um, and that will make a difference to people's lives. We did that. They also supported a bunch of our Learn to Plays and the tournaments, in particular the Ticket to Ride uh, tournament that we ran on a Sunday. Um, so, again, that's probably been one of the, uh, the, the biggest and best tournaments that we've run. Uh, MeepleCon with some of the best prizes um, and we couldn't have done that without the amazing support of the team from VR Distribution so that's been phenomenal as well I mean, it's just been a great year and I think last and definitely not least um, it's really important to give a shout out to those that are on a Melbourne Meeple's organising uh, committee so for any of you that do yeah, you're listening yes. and you also live in Melbourne you're also part of our community and you come to our events whether it's the weekly events the general ones or whether it's the big events these are only possible because we've got a team of people who dedicate a whole bunch of their time outside of their normal day jobs in order to get into work. We are an incorporated nonprofit organization, which allows us to run uh, events in a way that you otherwise couldn't, but it comes with that a whole bunch of additional work and stuff we have to do and due diligence quite rightly uh, to be able to, to have that status. So that work is largely led by a, a very, very busy and very, very hardworking uh, committee and outside of Jen and myself, I sort of call out uh, sort of Matt, our founder, uh, Tamara, Melissa, uh, Francois, and Sonica for the amazing work they've done this year, and some of the fabulous volunteers we've had, like uh, Rod Stewart and Michael, who have just made uh, you know a massive difference to how our events have run uh, throughout the year. It's been phenomenal, and I think for for the amount of viewers members as well who turn up at the end of MeepleCon and they go, "Hey, we've just come out of three days exhausting gaming, but do you want a hand? Do you want to help with some? Do you want to help pack up?" Every single one of you that comes up and, and does that, you know, and makes that life a little bit easier and is part of the team. And it's just, it makes these things doable. But some of the things that have happened this year just would not have been possible without a lot of hard work from from, from everyone. So, you know, a big shout out to all for, for, for the team here. We've put a lot of work in and what makes it special is when we put on an event and you will have a fantastic time playing board games. And that, Absolutely. That's what it's about. So, Take care. We love doing this for all of you. And you know what as well? Little shout out to Rod and Joe because without the support of our beautiful partners, this also wouldn't be possible because the amount of time that the two of us, I know, put into 
this as well. <laughs> it does take away a bit from our family time, but they are there always, the two of them, being so supportive and making sure that we can do the things that we need to do. So big shout out to Rod and Joe for being beautiful, supportive partners. It's wonderful to have both of you. I love Joe. I'm keeping Joe. <laughs> you know? yeah, she's she's the most beautiful person. If you've never had the opportunity to play a board game with Joe, come to one of our events and do because she's just the most sweet, gorgeous, awesome soul. And most people have met Rod if you've been to one of our events because he's always there. Joe is there a lot of the time, but she also has other stuff going on. So if you do get the chance, play with her. She's fabulous. But, yeah, huge shout-out to the whole community. Thank you so much for being so supportive over the last 12 months, and we can't wait to bring this all back to you next year. This is the Friendly Meeple's Lounge for 2023 signing off, and we will see you in 2024. Have a fantastic new year. Bye, everyone.